Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll start in verse 11 and read through 18. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden for you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for this time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brethren with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? So for a a couple of chapters now, Paul has been offering his defense. Really, in, in large part, that's what he has written this letter of 2 Corinthians 4, is to provide a defense for his apostleship for his authority that he has to be able to speak into the lives of the Corinthians. But especially starting from chapter 10 into uh, chapter 12 and 13, we see that Paul really begins to lay it on thick as he offers his defense, as he even begins to boast as he's writing to these Corinthians. And so I want to go back and consider some of the ways in which Paul has been boasting up until this point. Just glancing back real quick and looking over these Couple, last couple of chapters, back in 2 Corinthians 10, in verse 7, Paul says that he is, is boasting here that he belongs to Christ. He's contrasting the, the boast of the, the false apostles who are coming into Corinth, trying to corrupt the minds of the Corinthians, who say, well, yes, we belong to Christ. And Paul uh, repeats that and says, well, yeah, you belong to Christ, but, but we belong to Christ as well. And he expounds upon the distinctions and the ways in which he belongs to Christ. In verse 8 of that same chapter, Paul goes on to speak of his God-given authority that he has from God as an apostle. And continuing down in verse 11, he speaks there of the strength that he has, not only when absent, but when he's in person as well. Because again, it seems as he as if he is responding to an accusation that Paul is, he's strong and he's weighty when he's writing these letters, but then he shows up and he's, he's meek, he's nothing really fancy to look at. And Paul says, well, if you want strength, uh, if you consider the, the strength that are, is behind my words when I'm writing, we have the ability to bring that same strength in, in person. There's a, a little bit of a, a veiled threat perhaps there saying that we can show up and we can show you exactly how strong we are. In verse 13, Paul talks about how his boasting 
isn't an empty boasting. He's not boasting without measure. He's not boasting according to some arbitrary standard as these other apostles seem to be boasting. But his boasting is weighty. There's substance behind his boasting. And all of this is really his boast in the Lord. If you glance down in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, that's exactly what he says. He says, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And that was Paul's heart. That was his desire, not to lift himself up, not to pat himself on the back, but he wanted to boast in the Lord. And in the the next chapter, chapter 11, that's where he really begins to uh, lay it on thick, where he plays a fool and he gives this whole long grocery list of boasts, of things that he is able to, to claim for himself, ways in which he is able to say, I'm an apostle for this reason. I am a man of God. I have been given this authority because of A, B, C, D. He goes all the way down the list in chapter 11, giving this list of boasting. And again, it wasn't for his sake, but it was for the sake of the gospel. Because these false teachers in Corinth, they were undermining the the power and the authority of the gospel. If Paul were just to be boasting in himself, that would be... uh, absolutely unbecoming of a leader of the church, would be unbecoming of a a servant of God. And he would, uh, as Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, he would receive his reward in full if he was just trying to lift himself up and elevate himself and say, look at the great Apostle Paul. Look at how amazing and wonderful I am. That wasn't at all his desire. He wanted to lift up and elevate God, who is the, the most high God. And we can see that if we look at verse 30 of 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. That was what was really driving his, his boasting. He was boasting not in his greatness. He was boasting in his weakness. He was boasting what Christ had done through him, even as the, the weak and, and broken vessel that he was. In chapter 12, he goes on at the beginning of chapter 12, to boast of visions and revelations of the Lord. He says in verse 5, we looked at recently, it says, on behalf of such a man, speaking about himself, just in in third person, again, to uh, really draw out that humility, on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weakness. Once again, he's boasting in his weakness. And even as he's boasting of this account in chapter 12, of the revelation that he's been given, of his experience in heaven, he is tempted here to, uh, to lift himself up, to raise himself up higher than he ought to. And so he speaks of this thorn in the flesh that was given him to keep him humble, to remind him that he isn't uh, anything great. He's just a, a product of the love and the grace of God. And even as he is praying that God would take away this thorn, this thorn that was given to him so that he would be humble, this thorn that was given to him so that he wouldn't boast, as he's praying that God would take away this thorn, time after time after time, he's realizing that that's not what's important. He realizes, as we read in verse 9, that God's grace is sufficient. He doesn't need to get rid of this thorn, but the grace of God is adequate. And he goes on at the the tail end of verse 9 to say, Therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Again, that's, that's Paul's heart. He wants to decrease so that God may increase, so that the power of God can dwell in him. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, I am well content with weakness, 
with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And now as we get to our, our section today, Paul begins to summarize what he's gone over these last few chapters and really boil this down as he's wrapping up this, this series on, on boasting, this series on defending his apostleship. And in this summary that we're going to be looking at, there's really nothing new. There's nothing earth-shattering, nothing that Paul hasn't already covered in previous chapters. He's just offering a summary. He's, he's wrapping up and reminding the Corinthians again of why it is that they should listen to him, why it is that he is truly an apostle of God, and they need to take care when, concerning, when considering these uh, other super apostles, these most eminent apostles, as he refers to them in our passage today, that they need to uh, be careful of what it is that they're listening to from these other uh, so-called Christians. And as we're looking at this summary today, I don't want us to just check out because these are things that we've heard before. These are things that Paul himself has mentioned in the text before, but rather I want us to consider them as uh, in relation to the church and how Paul really is drawing out and uh, he's desiring a sacrificial love for the church. And so let's look first of all about at how Paul expected a, a sacrificial love from the Corinthians. In verses 11 through 12, we see this, this aspect, that he has an expectation of love from the Corinthians. Verse 11 says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am a nobody, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. This is the, the eighth time just in these few chapters that Paul uh, has really been reluctant to boast in this way. He starts off this section again, I have become foolish. He doesn't want to have to, to stand up and have to give this defense of himself. That's not what his desire is. He wants to, uh, he wants to love. He wants to serve. And yet he's found himself in this position where he's been uh, forced, really, compelled to stand up and to give this defense of himself. And he says that it is the fault of the Corinthians because they were the ones who should have stood up and should have been offering this commendation on his behalf. Proverbs 27.2, uh, which is a, a great proverb that I think our, our world has forgotten, says that we are to let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Paul's saying it's better to have a stranger come and, and offer a defense for you. It's better to have a stranger sing your praises. Paul isn't even praising himself here. Paul is just defending himself against these wild accusations, these falsified accusations from the Corinthians. And he's telling the Corinthians these falsified accusations from the, the false apostles in the midst of the Corinthians, and the Corinthians had failed to offer a defense on behalf of Paul. Uh, read with me in, in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist there says, Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. 
deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And while the, the context of this psalm is uh, directed toward orphans and widows and those who are in this needy position, I think the principle still applies to Paul. Paul here finds himself in need of defense. Paul here finds himself afflicted. He finds himself in need of rescue. And the Corinthians, they're not there at all. They weren't there offering support for Paul. They weren't there offering a defense for these lies and accusations that were being uh, thrown at Paul, that were being uh, repeated against Paul. They were nowhere to be found. And they weren't strangers, right? These Corinthians, they were well acquainted with Paul. Paul was their, their founding pastor. He had planted that church. Paul was their spiritual father in the faith, and they weren't there offering any defense for Paul whatsoever. C.K. Barrett says in his commentary that the fault of the Corinthians had been their silence. They had not actively taken the part of those who opposed Paul, but neither had they stood up for him, commending him, as they should have been. Hence, Paul had had to speak for himself, and thereby, in his own estimation, proved himself a fool. Paul didn't want to have to, to stand up and, and give these boasts, these uh, defenses for uh, chapter after chapter after chapter. Again, the, the whole of the book really has uh, that feel to it that Paul is offering this defense. Rather, the Corinthians, they should have been the ones standing up and offering a defense for Paul, for this man of God who loved them, who had poured himself out for them. Think back to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, a book in the Old Testament we don't refer to often, we don't go to often. But in that book, the, the Jewish people, they were rebuilding the, the wall around Jerusalem. And it was a, an amazing monumental feat they were seeking to accomplish all together, uh, coming out of slavery and coming back into their homeland, building this wall. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, it gives us a, a little glimpse into how they were doing that. It says that those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work with the other hand, holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded to his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. And if you read that whole chapter, it's talking about how uh, one person was standing uh, in front of his wall. He was working on his section of the wall, and he had his sword in his hand. And then next to him, there was another person. He had his sword in his hand. He was watching his buddy's back. And next to him, there was another person. It names all these names that I can't say, right? Um, but yeah, just imagine, oh, Robert's standing there. He's working on the wall. And Rex is right next to him. He's got his back. And Jeremy's over there, and he's watching Rex's back. And all the way down the line, they're backing each other up, and they're watching out for each other. And uh, they, they're doing this together. Well, that wasn't at all the case in, in Corinth, right? The Corinthians were standing by passively as Paul was being attacked. They weren't watching his back. They weren't worried about Paul. They weren't there ready to, to offer a defense for Paul. And nobody wants to go into war without their, their buddy who's been tasked with watching their flank actually paying attention. They want to go into war with somebody who's ready to fight, who's ready to go to battle. Recently in our, our Wednesday nights, we spent some time looking at uh, 2 Kings 6. You guys remember that passage where you have Elisha and his servant, and Elisha's servant gets up and he walks out of the house and he sees these armies 
that have completely surrounded them. And he seems to start freaking out a little bit. He doesn't know what to do. He sees that they're alone. They're completely outnumbered. And he turns to Elisha and he says, well, dude, what, what are we going to do? There's all kinds of people out there. And he seems to me to be a little bit scared, a little bit nervous, realizing that he's outnumbered. And then Elisha prays that God would open up his eyes so that he would see. And God gives him the ability to see the, the spiritual war that's going on all around him and how they're, in fact, not outnumbered, but how they have more with them than the enemy has with them, and they end up prevailing against the enemy. Well, Paul certainly knew that he was in the midst of a, a spiritual battle, didn't he? Paul, who wrote the words that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the, the heavenly forces of this dark realm, uh, he knew that our struggle isn't a physical one, that our struggle is a spiritual one. And yet, when Paul was surely hoping for defense from his, his fellow soldiers, his band of brothers back in Corinth, he found himself alone. He found himself without somebody there to defend him in this spiritual battle. I've never served in the military. I know that some of you have, but I think most of us haven't served in the military, right? Never been to war. Uh, and yet, I've served in, in other ways on other teams, right? Work teams or sports teams. And I know what it's like to be let down, to have somebody uh, fail you, to have somebody not show up, for you to be uh, left alone, all there by yourself. And, and that's discouraging, and that's upsetting. And that's where Paul found himself here. He was all alone. He was abandoned. And remember, we studied a long time ago now, back in chapter 1, Paul was going through a, a very difficult time. He pours his heart out to the Corinthians, saying that he has been burdened excessively, uh, that he is beyond strength, and in fact, that he is despairing of life. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter, he he lets them know, dude, I am, I'm despairing of life. I'm having a hard time right now even continuing on. And at this very vital point in his life, at this hard time in Paul's life, he is, again, finding himself alone and abandoned without the Corinthians being willing to stand up and to come to his defense. And it would have been really easy for Paul to just you know, offer all these boasts, offer all this defense of himself, and, and just leave it at that and carry on. But that's not what he does. He actually offers some correction to the Corinthians here. He calls them out a little bit and says, no, you guys should have been there. You guys should have been commending me for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. He calls them out. You guys are the ones who compelled me to stand up and to make a fool of myself, to boast myself because you wouldn't open your mouth. He's willing to call them out, which is truly a, a demonstration of love. Another proverb that our, our culture seems to have forgotten uh, is that uh, of Proverbs 27.6, which says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That's not what our, our world wants to hear, right? Nobody wants to be corrected. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. That's, that's not a, a thing that we wake up and desire to hear in the morning, right? However, that doesn't equate to hatefulness. When somebody points out something that, that is hurting you, something that you're doing perhaps that is harming yourself, that's not a, an act of an enemy. That's an act of a friend to 
point that out to you, to make you aware of that. Let's read together in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. And kids, listen up and, and pay attention to this. This is wisdom from the Word of God. It says, All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble to make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, to, to allow your, your friend, to allow your loved one, somebody that you actually care for, to go about without strengthening the hands that are weak, to just allow them to, to carry on with their weak hands when there's something that could be do about it, done about it. That's not loving. When we have the ability to, to strengthen knees that are feeble or to put into place a, a limb that is lame and we neglect to do so, that's not loving. And Paul here is being loving in pointing this out to the Corinthians and correcting them and letting them know you failed in your responsibility to, to step up and to come to bat for me. Because again, he was uh, not inferior to these super apostles or these most eminent apostles. And he goes on in verse 12, and he continues to tell them and to correct them uh, and tell them that they should have known better because the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. These signs and wonders and miracles were evidence of the fact that Paul was sent by God. In John chapter 5, Jesus had to give evidence for his being sent from God. He says that if a man just gets up and he says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sent from God, that testimony, that evidence isn't trustworthy. And so he goes and he gives evidence. He says, I have witness from the Father. The Father says that I've been sent from him. Remember when he was baptized? Uh, this voice came out from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, he gives testimony that the scriptures testify about him. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but they're actually pointing to me, Jesus said. He said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. He says, Moses was speaking about me in my day. So he speaks to Moses in the testimony that Moses gave. He speaks to the testimony from John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist, while he was baptizing Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus wasn't just proclaiming his own uh, authority, that he was sent from God. But then he goes on in verse 36 of John 5, and he says, I have testimony that's weightier, that's greater than that of John the Baptist, that the very works that the Father has sent me to do and those works which I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. The works, the miracles that Jesus was doing, they were evidence that he had come from the Father. And Paul here is saying the same thing, not in the sense that Paul is the Messiah, not in the sense that he is the Son of God, but he is saying the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, that he was performing these miraculous works. And we see these um, three words here, signs, wonders, and miracles. These aren't three different types of miracles, but it's speaking to uh, the effects or the results of these miracles. So signs are something that are significant, right? They are um, signifying something, showing that something is here, pointing towards something. That's what these signs were doing. These wonders, that was the result that was conjured up within the people who were watching these miracles take place, that they were filled with awe and wonder and amazement at what was being done. 
And the miracles were speaking to the, the supernatural work that were performed by God's unique power. It's something that was unnatural, something that wasn't normal, outside of the ordinary. And looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, there we see the, this same concept that God offers his stamp of approval on his messenger through these three, um, through signs, wonders, and miracles. It says in Hebrews 2, 4, that God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. That is how God was testifying uh, to his people. He was doing that through signs, wonders, and, and miracles, through those who were his. He was offering his stamp of approval on his people. And Paul comes along to the Corinthians and he says, I had these signs and wonders and miracles that I was performing among you and they were authenticating my ministry and still you failed to, to stand up and to come to my defense. And if you're wondering, like I was when I was going through this, well, what signs and wonders and miracles did Paul perform in Corinth? I don't think we have any record of what Paul actually did in Corinth, uh, except for here. I mean, we know that it happened because he's referencing it here. But let me read to you this verse from Acts chapter 19 about what Paul did in Ephesus. In Acts 19, 11, and 12, it says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. And so we know that Paul performed these miraculous signs, and he says here that he did it in Corinth, and that the Corinthians failed to recognize that they were a sign of his true apostleship. And look also at the way that he references these signs in verse 12. It says, the signs of a true apostle were performed. So he speaks of them in a passive sense. He's not even saying, I, the great apostle Paul, performed all these miracles and signs among you. Uh, he says that these signs were performed among you, uh, giving credit to God, giving glory to God for the, the way in which he performed these works through the hands of Paul. And so Paul, here we see, had this expectation that the Corinthians would love him, that they would love him sacrificially, even if it's only the sacrifice of uh, raising their voice and saying, uh, no, I don't think that's true about Paul. They weren't even doing that. But Paul had the expectation of them, that willingness to call them out for the way that they were living. We also see in the, the following verses that Paul explains his sacrificial love for the Corinthians. So he had this expectation from them, but he also had a love for them, a, a great love for them. Read with me in verse 13. It says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdened by you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So we see right off the bat that he was willing to bear the burden for these Corinthians. And again, this is nothing new. We've looked at this before about how Paul didn't accept payment from them. The Corinthians wanted to pay Paul. They had this twisted view in their mind that if an apostle didn't accept payment, then he was somehow inferior and Paul wasn't going to play into that game because he loved them, because he didn't want to be a burden to them. In fact, he was embracing this burden, putting this burden upon himself so that it wouldn't be put upon the Corinthians. And they were just completely misreading 
Paul's motive in doing so, that he was loving on them. We saw this back in chapter 11, where Paul was talking about how he was there to preach the gospel to them and to do so without charge. How he, in fact, robbed other churches so that he could serve them because he was taking money from other churches from time to time and he was serving the Corinthians, but he refused to take any money from the Corinthians. And we see a little bit of sarcasm here in this verse. I hope that you picked up on that when he says, forgive me this wrong. Uh, Paul doesn't really think that he's wrong. He does, he's not accepting any guilt for uh, this approach that he's taking in, in taking this burden upon himself and not taking money from them. But instead, this is evidence of his sacrificial love for the body of Christ. He's willing to sacrifice himself. He's willing to, to work day and night. He's willing to uh, go out and to, to make tents, to uh, work with leather so that he doesn't have to accept money from the church he's going to to, to try to serve. He's burdening himself for them. In verse 14 says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. I will not be a burden to you. So even after recognizing this, he's, he's committed that he's not going to burden them. He's not going to change his mind. He says, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. How beautiful is that? How personal is that? He's not looking for what he can get out of them. He wants a relationship with them. He wants them themselves. And then he gives an example at the end of verse 14. He says, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. This is a, a universal truth, right? This isn't just something that was true of the Corinthians. It's not just something that's true of us. It's something that is a universal truth. Uh, when we go out to a restaurant, I don't take the, the check and give it to my eight-year-old and expect him to pay it, right? Uh, when, when I get a bill for the electricity, I don't give it to my kids and say, here you go, you guys can provide for me. You guys can take care of me. The kids can take care of their parents. That's not how it works. Uh, maybe one day they'll be changing my diapers, but not today, right? <laughs> today is the job of the parents to take care of the children, right? And that's what Paul's saying, that he wants to, to love them. He doesn't want to be a burden to them. He's supposed to care for them. And he's pleading with them to allow him to do just that. We see as he goes on, not only that he, he's given a reason here, he's not seeking their, their stuff, right? He wants them themselves. He gets even more explicit in verse 15 as he gives his reason for bearing this burden. He says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Paul had an understanding of the importance of the human soul, of the eternality of the human soul that we don't, we don't just die and cease to exist, but that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And we are going to find ourselves before the throne of God. We are going to have to give an account for every idle word that was spoken. And Paul is concerned for the souls of these Corinthians. He has a love for these Corinthians. He knows that we are, are lost in our trespasses of sin, that we are we are guilty before a holy and loving God, that we are destined for hell, that we are in need of a Savior. That is his number one concern for the Corinthians. It's for their souls. He doesn't want their stuff. He wants them. He wants them to understand the truth of the gospel. He wants to win them to the Lord. He wants them to be in a right relationship with God. His number one concern is their souls. That is his reason for laying aside any 
money that they wanted to give him. He was going to reject that. He was going to uh, remove any barrier possible between the Corinthians and the God that they desperately needed. Not only money, he was willing to exclude himself from any money that they were offering, but he was also willing to jump past that, that burden, that barrier of, of time and effort. And, and Paul, he just got done going through everything that, that he was struggling through, all these different burdens, all this uh, stuff that he was boasting about. He was boasting about how he was up night and day just worrying about these churches. He had a, a great compassion in his heart, a great concern for them. And he was willing to do anything he could to make sure that they weren't uh, restricted in any way from the gospel. Back in Romans chapter 9, we see a, a beautiful example of this. In Romans 9, 3, Paul talks about how he would give himself up for uh, his fellow countrymen. He says, for I would, I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That was the kind of love that Paul had. He was willing to, to lay down his life for somebody else. I like how John MacArthur puts it. He says that uh, Paul gave them everything. The only thing that he didn't give them was a bill, which is absolutely true. He, he gave his, his life for them. He gave his time for them. He didn't charge anything for them, uh, from them. He didn't ask them for anything. He was just giving, giving, giving without taking. And then in verse 15, the latter part of verse 15, we see the response of this, this great uh, sacrifice that Paul is making for these people. Uh, he's doing it for their souls. And this is the response. It says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And seemingly that was the, the response, that the more that Paul loved them, the more that he gave of himself to them, the more that he sacrificed for the Corinthians, the less they loved Paul, the less they accepted and embraced Paul. Paul would give more. He would stay up later. He would write to them. He would send people to them, and they would reject him. He would uh, refuse their payment. He would go to them and see them in person. He would counsel and instruct them. He would tell them what to do, what not to do, and yet they refused to love Paul. In fact, they turned away, and they seemed to give their love to these false apostles rather than to Paul. And that must have been just a, a stake to the heart for Paul, that he poured into them more and more and more, and they pushed away from him more and more and more. We see this all throughout the letter. Um, look with me back at chapter 7, verse 2. Paul here also pleading with them. He says, make room for us in your hearts. He's just pleading. Just open up your hearts to us. Make room. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I don't speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. This is a seemingly one-sided relationship where Paul keeps pouring into them and the responses we read back here in verse 15 of chapter 12 is that he is loved less. And again, this is kind of Paul calling them out. Am I to love you more and you love me less? This isn't right. This doesn't match up. What's going on here? That's not how things ought to be. This is a, a very or return on investment from Paul's perspective, right? He's just pouring into them, getting nothing. Pouring into them, getting nothing. And yet, he continues to respond with sacrificial love. That's his response because that was Jesus' response, right? Jesus is rejected. He's uh, refused. He's denied. 
And yeah, even though he's reviled, he doesn't revile anybody in return. He continues to love. He continues to show compassion. And Paul here is doing the same, walking in the footsteps of his Savior. So Paul has this expectation that the church would love him. And he demonstrates his love for them and shows them how vastly he loves them. He gives them the reason that he loves them for their souls. And despite the fact that their reaction to him is not a favorable one, he continues to love them. And yet, here, uh, toward the the end of our section, we're going to see that Paul even exemplifies his love for his co-workers. So before, he was calling out the Corinthians because they weren't standing up for him. They weren't coming to his defense. And Paul is going to do and, and give an example of how he's doing the very thing that he's condemned them for not doing. Starting in verse 16, he says, Uh, toward the end of 16, it says, Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brethren with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? And so it would appear here that Paul is now catching flack for not only refusing to accept money, which we've covered before, but it seems that now he's being accused of organizing this relief for the church of Jerusalem so that he can line his own pockets. We talked about that a little bit back in in chapters 8 and 9 and how there was this church that was really hurting in Jerusalem and um, that he wanted to, to build up this collection so he could send it to them. Well, it seems that now there's this accusation coming that Paul is only doing that so that he could line his own pockets, so that he could Uh, Make that money himself. And the word used for deceit here in verse 16 is the same word that's used to speak of bait that's put in the the mouth of a fish, to catch a fish, or to catch an animal in trap. The, The false apostles that are coming up against Paul and these accusations that are coming up against Paul are saying that you're just being crafty, you're just being tricky, you're trying to to entrap the Corinthians in, in this little scheme that you got going on so you could get this money and you could take advantage of the Corinthians. Well, if you're thinking like I'm thinking that this doesn't quite make sense, it doesn't measure up, you're, you're absolutely right. Because why would Paul refuse to take money from the Corinthians just so that he could scheme them out of this other money that was supposed to go to the, uh, the church at Jerusalem? That, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, James White is famous for saying that uh, inconsistency is a sign of a failed argument. When, when you're not consistent, that's evidence that your argument is garbage, that it's trash. And it absolutely was, because the false apostles, they weren't worried about having a consistent argument. They weren't worried about honoring God. Um, they, the love that they had was for the approval of men rather than for the approval of God. Um, they just wanted to, to throw any accusation against Paul and see what stuck. They weren't worried about whether or not it was true. They are just lobbying all these accusations against Paul, realizing that he was a threat to them coming in and taking advantage of the Corinthians. They didn't want Paul around. They realized the influence that he had in, in Corinth, and they were willing to, to accuse him in whatever way they could. C.K. Barrett, again, he says that the minister who receives payment must always expect that his motives, which may be faultless, will be questioned. And that's true. I hope that we can realize that's true, especially in, in Utah. There seems to be kind of a, uh, a disrespect for a minister who receives payment. 
I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with somebody, told them uh, that I'm in some level of ministry, and they ask me, well, do you get paid for your ministry? That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Uh, the fact that uh, a minister gets paid or, or doesn't get paid doesn't negate the veracity of his ministry. It doesn't negate the truth of his message. But here, Paul wasn't even receiving any money, and he was still being accused. Uh, Barrett goes on to say, that if the Corinthians believe Paul to have been capable of stealing the collection, confidence and pastoral relationship are at an end, which is absolutely true. If they thought that Paul could actually be stealing these, uh, this money and, and taking it away from them, that is evidence that the, the amount of respect that they had for Paul was minimal. That's evidence that their willingness to be led and influenced by Paul was in jeopardy. This is not a good place for this church to be, to be questioning the, uh, the honesty of Paul. And again, we see here that there is even more sarcasm um, where Paul is saying, oh, crafty fellow that I am, I, I took you in by deceit. Paul isn't here admitting to guilt, right? He's just being sarcastic. And I think even the sarcasm, the sarcasm here is evidence of the, the love and relationship that he had with these people. I know that you ladies might think it's, it's strange, and it is a little bit strange, but that's kind of how men work with each other. Uh, we like to be sarcastic, and this sarcasm, this uh, jesting, increases with our level of comfort with one another. So women, when you grow closer in relationships, you, um, you, you open up and you share with each other, and you cry, and you buy each other coffee and flowers, and it's really sweet and really nice. But men... Don't really do that, right? When men grow in a relationship with each other, we'll like mess up each other's hair or come up behind somebody and tackle them, tackle them down on the ground and wrestle with them, right? Or if you don't have hair to mess up, you'll make fun of somebody for not having hair to mess up and, and call each other names. That's how men work, right? Or, or showing embarrassing pictures of uh, the, their co-pastor. No, I won't do that. <laughs> but this, this sarcasm, this jesting, again, is evidence of... Uh, a close relationship. And so I think Paul is even able to, to jest and be sarcastic with the Corinthians because he loves them, because he's built this relationship with them. And so he's able to say, oh yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm coming in and I'm trying to take advantage of you guys. I took you in by deceit because I'm so crafty. That's not at all what Paul is doing. And in fact, Paul is going to, to go on and he's going to offer this defense, not only of himself, but of Titus and uh, this other man as well. So let's go back and let's look together at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul really lays out this situation of sending these people to collect this money. In 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 16, Paul, uh, making plans for this collection, he says, But thanks be to God, who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. So Titus is who he just mentioned back in, or I guess, forward in chapter 12. He says, For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you in his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame of the things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches. Not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered to us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. 
and we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, who we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the church and the glory of God. So, Paul here is saying Titus has been sent with this gift, along with these other two trusted men in the church, and they did this very wisely, I might add, to uh, protect against accusations. There was a lot of wisdom in the accountability that Paul surrounded himself with. He wasn't just taking this money by himself, but he had Titus and these other two men that are mentioned as well, these trustworthy men. And if Paul truly did uh, seek to deceive the Corinthians and take this money for himself, then these other three men must have been involved in that whole collusion. It must have been all of them together. And Paul's saying, that's absolutely not the case. That's ridiculous. And so in one, def- in one sense, he's offering a defense for himself, saying that uh, it is uh, inconceivable that he would step in, he would take these funds, because he had these other men who were holding him accountable. And yet, in the same sense, he's coming to their defense. He doesn't want their names to be tarnished. He's saying that there's no way that they had anything to do with this. And so verses 17 and 18, these aren't like legitimate questions that Paul is asking. These are rhetorical questions where he's saying, this is absolutely not the case. He says, certainly I have not taken advantage of you through those that I have sent you, have I? Paul has no question. He has no doubt that Titus and these other trustworthy men didn't take advantage of them. He's just pointing this out to them. You guys are being absolutely ridiculous. You guys need to leave their names out of it. Verse 18, I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him, which again is another demonstration of his love for this church, that he's willing to uh, provide for their spiritual needs even when he is far off. He says, Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? He has no question in his mind. He knows that he didn't. Did we not condemn ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? And so throughout this section where Paul is summarizing this defense that he's been offering, these boastings that he's been offering, uh, we've seen that his heart is absolutely for God's glory. He wants God to be honored and glorified. He wants Christ's church to be exalted and, and elevated. He wants to see this sacrificial love for Christ and for his church. And if we are truly to reflect Jesus, then we must demonstrate the same kind of sacrificial love for one another, where Paul expected this love from the church. He was willing to, to demonstrate this love to the church. And then he even went out and he offered this example of how he was willing to come to the defense of his co-workers, of his co-laborers, uh, even when the Corinthians were unable and unwilling to come to the defense of Paul himself. And he was willing to, to put his money where his mouth is. He was willing to, to walk the talk and not just to hypocritically call them out on something they weren't doing. And just bringing it home a little bit for you and I in, in Pacing, Utah at Orchard Hills Bible Church, if we seek to, to honor and to glorify our God, which I hope we do, right? That, that's part of our purpose statement. If we seek to do that, then we must cultivate sacrificial love within our body. We must cultivate a, a love where we're willing to, uh, to love each other, where we're willing to prioritize one another, Uh, standing with one another in in unity. Even when things are difficult, we need to be unified together. And even 
if necessary, holding each other accountable to the, the high calling of what it means to be the bride of Christ. Not looking at that as a negative thing, but willing, being willing to embrace the, the correction that comes from our loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. We want to be a, a loving church. We want to be a church that's willing to sacrifice like Paul was, that's willing to sacrifice like Christ was. God, let us consider one another as more important than ourselves. Let us be unified together in, in your name, in your blood. God, we thank you for this body. Help us to grow stronger. Help us to grow closer together and closer to you. Amen.